as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing a lot of power, a lot of power, all sorts of things, miracles and exorcisms and signs and wonders. This morning, though, I want to talk about a different kind of power, one that isn't quite so externally seen, the kind that is prayed about by Paul for his church in Ephesus. Paul prays this, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray, he says, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, again, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Why? So that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a prayer. What is Paul praying? He is praying for an inner power. Something way beyond just displays of outward power. I look at these cars that are out there. You know how many engines are sitting out in that parking lot? But none of them are moving right now. There's lots of latent power. But without an ignition spark, it's all worthless. And our hearts are similar. Without Almighty God working in our inner person, he, he calls it, we can't know God. Truly, we can know about Him, but we can't truly know Him in that transforming way in which we receive all the fullness of what He wants us to be, which is nothing less than Jesus Christ Himself, His image in us. And so the question before us this morning, and I think we're going to see with the disciples in our passage, is, is this power at work in me? Or am I just a car with a ton of Bible knowledge and lots of an impressive resume of, Christian, of church attendance and officers in the church and all that, but sitting latent? Because that's the real power that changes the world. We're in a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And we're in cha Mark chapter 6. We're going to finish up chapter 6 this morning. You can turn there. Mark 6, starting in verse 45, page number 704, if you're using the Bible that's underneath the chairs. 704. And I've entitled my message today, He Is. Because the disciples know Jesus, or so they think they do. He's even done great things through them. But do they really know who he is? And even us, we are known as, you know, a, a really strong church, but do we really know who he is? His, is his power at work to the extent where his fullness is being experienced? That's what we're asking ourselves as we look at this passage this morning. Starting at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. 
Let's just stop right there right now. Last week where we left off was, if you remember, Jesus had done another miracle. Anyone remember what it was last week? Feeding of the 5,000. Good, good. You haven't forgotten. That's good. No. So he fed 5,000. It was a miracle, right? One little boy's lunch. It's an astounding thing that, that, that they've just witnessed and experienced. Do you remember they had originally gone to that, to that place. They were in a solitary wilderness place. They'd gone there to be on vacation. They needed a break. His disciples had been off on a trip, and Jesus had been separated from them for a long time. They finally came together. He said, let's go to a vacation. Instead, they find all these people, and they minister to them all day long. So these people, Jesus and the disciples, are exhausted. And finally, they're at the end of the time of feeding and teaching. And so Jesus, verse 45, says, He makes his disciples get in the boat, go on ahead to Bethsaida while he dismisses the crowd. So what's interesting here, yeah, taking a look at the map, thank you. Up here is Bethsaida. And this is going to be an interesting little piece here, so track with me. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's Bethsaida. And in this region right here, in the wilderness area right here, is where the miracle of 5,000 most likely occurred. I won't get into all the different suggestions because we'll be here all morning. You don't, we don't want to do that. According to Mark, he, sends, he says, get in a boat and go to Bethsaida. Well, John says, get in a boat and go to Capernaum, which is over here, which is the home base for Jesus. So the question is, wait a minute, are these two disciples confused? Where are they actually supposed to be going? eventually we're going to see in the end of the passage they're going to land at Gennesaret, which is right next to Capernaum. They're going to land here. So if he's sending them over here, it's odd that they, they land over there. It's, it seems more like John, when John says he sent them to Capernaum and they would land in Gennesaret, that would make a lot more sense. So what is Mark trying to tell us? And what makes the most sense to me is this. They're out in the wilderness near Bethsaida, and Bethsaida would extend down to the Sea of Galilee. And he's saying, look, I'll stay in the wilderness dismissing these people. You go to Bethsaida. When, as soon as you get there, get in a boat and go to Capernaum. And that's what's going to happen because they're going to end up over here when we're all done this morning. So they're going to leave here and go here. He sends them down to Bethsaida. And he says, while you do that, I'm going, I, I'm going to go up into the mountains and pray. They're going to be separated again. Now what's interesting here is it says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Now, made is an interesting word in the Greek. It's very, very strong, anatkadzo. And here are the way it's translated, compel, drove, force, made, where we see it here. It's a really strong word. It's like, it's like a military force compelling you to do something and forcing you. Why does he got to force them? Because what he's saying is, I want you to go without me. Now, they, we just finished seeing a few weeks ago, they had been apart from him. And then last week, they were excited to get back together and tell them all that was going on. Then they go on vacation, but they end up doing ministry. And now they're finally going to be with Jesus. And he says, leave without me. So he's got to force them to go. He forces them to get in the boat and leave them there while he's with the crowd. Now, why would he do that? Why would he force them to go out? He's very intentional about wanting them to leave without him. Just hold on to that for now. In the meantime, we read in verse 46 that he goes up on a mountainside to pray. And that's a very powerful thing. He finally, Jesus has his vacation time. He's been working hard. He's been constantly ministering. They were needing a break. He needs a break. But instead of going and grabbing the remote and sitting in the lazy boy, he goes up on a mountainside to pray all night long, as we're going to see. 
And I think what we're seeing there is for Jesus, that is vacation. Being alone with his father in prayer is vacation, is a break. And you know, for me, sometimes when I think of spiritual things, whether it's reading the Bible or studying or praying, oftentimes in my flesh, I think of that as work. I don't know if any of you connect to that or not. Feels like vacation to me feels like grabbing the remote, getting in the lazy boy, and watching a baseball game all afternoon, you know, and hanging out and doing my own thing. For Jesus, it's going to be alone with the Father. And he's getting rejuvenated as he's up there with his Father. And so, Father, I just pray, would you help us in our mindsets to not see prayer? Lord, prayer can be work when it's intercession in particular. But Lord, it's a place to rest with you, it's a place to receive. It is. It is our Sabbath. It is vacation. It is where we're rejuvenating and refreshed. Lord, change our mindsets about prayer and your word. And not see them as work, but see them as they're meant to be. Avenues and, and vehicles of refreshment for us. Please, Lord, do this. So he's rejuvenated up there with the Father, listening to him. In John's gospel, it says that the people wanted to make him king after they fed him. And so perhaps he's going up there to get himself realigned with the Father before, you know, he goes back into ministry from there. Either way, he's receiving everything he needs. And while Jesus is receiving everything he needs in prayer, the disciples are getting the last thing they need, which is an exercise on a rowing machine, basically. Verse, 40, uh, verse 47, later that night, the boat, with the disciples, was in the middle of the lake, and he's alone up there on the land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them, this powerful wind that they can barely, these professional fishermen can't even move through. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. All right, before we go any further, just stop right there because there's something so easy to miss and so crucially important to catch. There are two time markers here that Mark has given us, and they're crucial. Verse 47, later that night, some of your translations say when evening came. That is the right around dusk time. You're talking about eight, springtime at this point, around 8 o'clock or so. So think about that in your mindset. 8, 8.30, that's where they are. They're in the middle of the lake. John, John's gospel says that it's three to, they've been out three to four miles when, when this occurs. So they are, they are way out there. They've been rowing for a while. Remember, they had gone originally across the lake to get rest. They got no rest. And now they're on a boat to go get rest again. And instead of rest, they're in the middle of this windstorm that they're, they're straining at the oars at. So this is, this, this is not what they were expecting. And meanwhile, what's Jesus doing? He's up resting on the mountain. Now, what's really interesting about you is when you look at this, it says that he saw them. He saw them straining at the oars. He's up in the mountain. They're three or four miles out. It's, it's nighttime. Does he see him naturally? Does he see him supernaturally? We don't know. I took a picture when I was out there in uh, Israel two years ago. This is from what's considered the Mount of Beatitudes. We don't know for sure where he preached that message. But you can see how much of the lake you can see from the top of that mountain. So he could potentially see, see them way out there. Plus, last night, I don't know how many of you saw this, I took a picture of the moon in my backyard last night. Of course, it's hard to tell with my little phone camera. But the moon was really bright last night. Anyone notice that? It was gigantic. It, like, lit up my backyard. 
So I kind of picture that. Remember, it's not a rainstorm. It's, it's just a wind, but it's a nasty windstorm. It would be, there'd be white-capped waves all over the place. It'd be really nasty out there. But perhaps, the, I don't know, the moon is shining. It doesn't matter. Either way, whether supernatural or naturally, he sees them. But now notice the second time marker in 48. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them. Shortly before dawn. Actually, the Greek is in the fourth hour, fourth watch of the night. Fourth watch of the night would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So put those time frames together. Did you catch that? When did he first see them struggling? Eight o'clock at night. When does he go out to them? Seven to ten hours later. He's just up there getting his rest. By the way, when it says straining at the oars, really weird word there. Straining is, the, is, the, is banazizo, which means torture. It's the word for torture. Used of the, of the disciples and Paul when they're being tortured in Acts. This, they, these guys are exhausted. Have you ever gotten to the end of your rope? And just when you think you couldn't you know, possibly take any more, God brings more difficulty your way. That's the picture here. It's like, are you kidding me? We're already exhausted. We've already gone three to four miles, and now we're against this thing that's torturing us. And meanwhile, Jesus is up there hanging out with pots. And I know there are some of you this morning, you know, the Bible says that God will never tempt you beyond what you can bear. And I know some of you have said to me, you know, Andre, sometimes I think maybe God has forgotten how much I can bear. Because I feel tortured by him. Seven to ten hours watching them. What is that all about? Now the text doesn't tell us. So we don't really know, but maybe it's because or hinted at a little bit in this last clause. He went out to them walking on the lake. Walking on the lake. Who walks on the lake? <laughs> Actually, Job knew who walked on the lake. He, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. There's only one who can walk on the waves of the sea, and that is Jesus Christ, Almighty God. Maybe he's allowing them to be in this position because it's only in this weakened state that perhaps they can let go of everything they understand in their pride to finally see Jesus for who he really is. Sometimes trials is the very thing God uses to finally open our eyes, our self-sufficient eyes, to see God for who he really is. And wouldn't we, wouldn't we be willing to pay the price of difficulties to see God for who he really is? And who is he? First point this morning, Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. That, that's what this is proclaiming. Look, he's done a lot of miracles so far. I mean, he, he's, he raised a little girl who was dead to life. He's done some amazing things. Multiplied the bread and the, and the fish. He's, he's healed a woman who was bleeding for 12 years. He's done amazing things. But this is the first miracle. This is just my own thought here this week. But he, this is the first miracle where he's doing something to himself. You catch that? Everything he's been doing has been to other people. But now he's doing something that's showing that he's something more than just a really gifted miracle worker. 
Because there's miracle workers in the ancient world. But there's no one walking on water, defying the laws of nature. Who is this guy? Just when we think we have him figured out, he, he walks on water. Now, even to this day, we struggle with this, right? We're a logical people. God and man in the same person, that doesn't work. I'm sorry, you know, but I'm, one plus one doesn't equal five, it equals two. That makes no logical sense. And people will, will you know, the Trinity, three and one, people will say, you guys aren't even using your brains. And they come up with different ideas to explain things. I remember several, many years ago, about 20 years ago, my wife and I went with a friend to, to their church. And it was a fine church. Um, but when the pastor got up, he made it clear he didn't believe that this book is the Word of God. And then as he started to speak, he would spoke on this passage. And when he got to Jesus working on water, he said, you know, there's truth that out in the Sea of Galilee, there are many, many rocks in the Sea of Galilee. And he proceeded to make a scientific argument that Jesus walked on the walk was walking on rocks and was not actually walking on the He just seemed like he was walking on the water. Well, John tells us that they're three to four miles out. That's an awfully long set of rocks to be just in the right place. That makes no talk about making no sense. Another thing I should point out to you is that when it says walking on the lake, on, that word epi is almost always translated on or upon, but it, one of the, you know, 17 different possible ways it could be translated is by. So you catch that? So some people will interpret it, actually what he's saying is he was walking by the lake. And they say that's why they don't really recognize him because he's so far away. What they don't talk about is how does he get into the boat at that point? And why would they be amazed, right? We leave out the details that don't make sense to our argument. When you put the details together, there's only one solution. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's displaying his power and mastery over all things. But how would you like to be in the presence of that kind of power? So how do they react? Let's see. So he walked in there. He was about to pass them by. Which, by the way, there's a lot of different ideas on what that means, and I don't have time to tell you all of them. I just, one thought that came to me, I think maybe the only reason Mark puts that there is just to say Jesus is not having any trouble with this wind. That's what, that's the, that's the only thing, that's what makes sense to me. Imagine, can you imagine yourself not able to move, and then this guy's just walking along like it's, <laughs> like any day, right? He's the Lord of heaven and earth. The wind isn't a problem for Jesus. The biggest thing going on in your life right now is not a problem for Jesus. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, ah! because all, they all saw him and were terrified. The word ghost there is phantasma, where we get phantom. So they think, they don't think it's Jesus. They know Jesus is alive. They wouldn't be expecting to see a ghost of Jesus. They don't, they don't know what it is. They just see an apparition in the middle of this horror. Remember, it's three, four, five in the morning. They've been at this for seven or ten hours. They're exhausted. They were already exhausted. And now they see something walking on the water. They're not like, oh, it's Jesus. Come on in, buddy. No. They're, they're, now, remember, too, the Jews thought that the sea was the place of the abyss. The sea is darkness. The sea is death. 
Now you're in trouble on the sea and you see an apparition walking on the waters in Jewish thinking, this is a demon that's going to take me down into the abyss. They are frightened out of their minds. Jesus understands that and so he wastes no time. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. In other words, guys, don't worry, it's me, it's Jesus, we're cool. Relax, it's me. And then he comes into the boat, and the wind died down. Died down there is the aorist verb tense, meaning single moment. Soon as Jesus is in the boat, done, wind gone. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Imagine this scene. They're completely amazed. That does such an injustice to the Greek here. Oh, my goodness. There is so much going on here in the Greek, I can't even tell you. The only English translation that even comes close to rendering what's going on is the King James. And here's what it says. And he went up onto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And now watch, completely amazed, the King James says, they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. One, two, three, four different words, boom, 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 to all say completely amazed. He throws in two adverbs he doesn't even have to throw in. He could have just said they were amazed. They were beyond understanding, extremely in themselves. In other words, he's, he's, trying to, he's throwing in everything in there to try to tell you they, this is something that's now gone beyond all of their understanding of who Jesus is. Again, he's doing a miracle on himself. He's doing something that, that is not possible. He's, it's not that he's helping somebody else, but he's like, he's, what kind of being is he even? In this moment, is he even being a physical being? What is he? Man, they're out of their minds. Now, why? Now, being amazed is usually a good thing, right? They're completely amazed. They're beyond. They're wondering. Why are they wondering? Mark tells us, verse 52, and this is the heart of where I want to go this morning. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What didn't they understand about? What happened with the loaves? We understand, don't we? What did he do with the loaves? Multiplied them. What's there done? What didn't they get? Mark, again, doesn't tell us. But whatever it was, they couldn't receive what Jesus was giving them because their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hard. But wait a minute. Their hearts were hard. These are the disciples. They don't have hard hearts, do they? I mean, they're following Jesus everywhere he goes. They're doing what he does. How The Jewish leaders are against him, but they're faithful to him. When I think hard hearts, I mean, who comes to mind when you think of Bible and hard heart? Pharaoh, right? Pharisees, right? People who are dead set against God and his plan. That's a hard-hearted person. Why would Mark call the disciples? Frankly, guys, the disciples are like you and me. Does Jesus look at Winterberry and say, there's a bunch of hard hearts there? And if he does, what does he mean by that? This really bothered me. And to be honest with you, most of the commentaries are just kind of blowing through it. And then I was further 
agitated in my spirit as I studied this when I looked at the way Matthew describes their reaction. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Does that sound like hard hearts? Well, I wouldn't interpret that as hard-hearted. Well, Mark says they're hard-hearted. What's going on here? I finally came upon a commentator who I thought finally made some sense. And boy, then some blinders came off from my own heart. N.T. Wright said this. I don't think Mark's remarks about the disciples being hard-hearted is a major criticism of them. What else might you expect <laughs> with what they just witnessed and experienced? He's simply warning that to grasp all this will need much more than suspension of disbelief. Okay, blind faith. No, no, no. It's going to take a complete change of hearts. What's he saying? He's saying that to truly understand God, you've got to have the right receiver. If you want to get tuned into God, you have to have a heart that has the ability to pick up his signal. You can have a great engine out there, but if there's no spark, it's going nowhere. We can have decades of Bible knowledge, seminary education, elder, pastor, and have no spark in us. And all that knowledge is worthless. And, and this is my own thought now. But sometimes I think I get to a certain place where, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm good with what I know of you. I'm good with my handle of your word. I, I got my doctrine figured out. I'm, I'm good right here. Don't show me anything beyond this that's uncomfortable. Don't stretch me because I'm good right here. And when I settle that self-determined Christianity it's like an engine in that parking lot do we really know Jesus really know him deeply know him my second point this morning now I'll actually go to the second point Jesus can only be understood with a new heart that's why Paul prays the way he does for the Ephesians. He prays for them to have a new heart. He prays for them to have a different heart. We'll go to that prayer again. Go ahead now if you would, Greg. Thank you. I pray, Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Out of his glorious riches, he may do what? Strengthen you with power through what? My effort? My study? No. Through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may truly dwell in your hearts through faith. Are you following that? Unless the Spirit of God works in my heart, all my study will amount to nothing. I need the Spirit of God doing a miracle in my heart. And I need to be open to Him doing so. And that's where the hard-hearted comes into play. I'm not open to you doing anything beyond what I know. And we sit there dead. But he wants to bring us to life. And only he can do it. We can't go to a seminar to get it. We can't read a book to get it. What is, how does Paul handle it? He prays for it. 
And I asked myself, Andre, when was the last time you prayed, God, would you work in my inner being in such a way that you would show me the depths of all that you are and all that you have and the depths of your love, the width, depth, length, and height of it so that I can, and I don't care where it takes me, Lord. It might take me right out of my doctrine right now. Am I even willing? And we say, no, I'm not. And that's hard-heartedness. It's not Pharaoh hard-heartedness. It's believer hard-heartedness. These Ephesians are Christians he's praying for, aren't they? The Bible says when you trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, he sends a spirit into your heart. The spirit of God comes into your heart. You come to life spiritually. And now you can have a relation with God. And so they're already believers, aren't they? But he's praying this prayer for people who already have the Holy Spirit. So it's not just a matter of of get saved and I'm good. He wants to take us deeper and deeper and further and longer and higher and wider. And it's a continual laying down and a surrendering and a prayer. God, I want this. I let go of my comfort zone. I, I let you take me where you want. Oof. God, do this in our hearts. Help us to be willing to let you take us wherever you want to go. The good news is this is God's heart. This is his desire. It's actually his plan. The prophet said God would send a new heart. Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart, he promises, when the Messiah comes. And I will put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. You will know my love and my goodness deeply. Woof. I want that. Heart surgery is what we need. That's what the disciples need. They're not quite there just yet. That's why I think he calls them hard-hearted. But finally, I'm going to come back to this point, but finally their voyage ends, 53. When they finally crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, like I showed you earlier, and they anchored there, literally harbored there. Rich was telling me, he was reading an article, they found all these ancient harbors from Jesus' days. Archaeologists see a galley, so that's kind of interesting. Anyways, uh, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. Now, the last, last couple of verses here uh, is, a, is a summary, basically, of all that Jesus has been doing in these first six chapters. So I'm just going to read through them, make one point. They ran throughout, the people ran throughout the whole region and they carried the sick on mats to where, wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed, um, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. That would be the place in this village that's the public meeting space, the marketplace. They begged him to let him touch even the edge of his cloak, meaning the blue tassels that would remind him to pray according to the commandments of the Lord every day as a faithful Jew. And all who touched it were healed. And what we get here is just kind of a summary. We've seen all of this before. This is repetitious with what we've been reading consistently through the first six chapters. What's going to happen next, well, actually two weeks from now, we're going to go to chapter 7. And what you're going to see is a shift. Mark is going to now go more into Jesus' teaching. And so this is kind of a marker in the book of Mark. What we've seen is Jesus is a miracle worker is what he's basically saying. That's how the people understand him. He's much more than that, we just saw on the lake. But the people just see him as a miracle worker, and that's why they're coming to him. And it could be easy to say, well, if that's the only reason they're coming to him, then why would Jesus do anything for them? 
They don't really understand him. They're coming for the wrong reason. But that's what I take out of these verses. It says, look at it. It says, they came from all over the region, right? And, and everywhere he went, they brought sick people. They begged him, touched him, even just the edge of his cloak. And everyone who touched were healed. That blows my mind. He doesn't give them a, a theological test to make sure their doctrine is straight before we minister to you. He doesn't say, you know, well, have you been, what have you been doing the last 24 hours? You've been doing good things or bad things, like Santa Claus, right? This is astounding grace. There's, there's, no, there's no checking anything. Anyone and everyone, without discrimination, he blesses them. I'm reminded of Matthew. It's a concept of common grace they talk about in theology and how God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends common grace on everybody, deserving or not. This is a display of the incredible grace of God that he would grace everyone, whether they're worthy of it or not, because the reality is none of us are. And he says, all who came, every single one, regardless of who they are or what their background was. The gospel, God's heart is wide open to everybody. And he's got more than enough for everybody. And this grace that he's pouring out, this physical healing, are all manifestations of the love of God that Paul prayed about in Ephesians, coming out in practicality. And that's how I would summarize these last couple of verses here as we close the first six chapters of Ephesians. And that's just this. Jesus loves unconditionally. Unconditionally. That's good news, guys. We just got told the disciples are hard-hearted. It's not a, N.T. Wright, I think, is right. It's not a slam the disciples. Jesus is so patient with those disciples. And he keeps going with them, unconditionally, loving on them. Even as they fit, will fail him even later, he will pour out his blood for them. That's the heart of God. And it's beyond our comprehension. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to do a miracle in us if we're ever going to comprehend who this God really is and enter into the fullness of all that he wants for us. So where are we this morning? Do we know this love? I intentionally skipped one little phrase because I wanted to save it for the end here. One little phrase. When, when Jesus spoke to them on the water, he said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. The phrase, it is I, in the Greek, is literally, I am. Read it again that way. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. What does it mean, I am? It's the Old Testament name of God. When God revealed himself to the people he chose, undeserving people he chose, he said, I am who I am, Yahweh. Yahweh, and I want you to know me in all of my grandeur and glory. Your salvation is not in your religious piety. Your salvation is in knowing me and the depth of my goodness and the depth of my love. So the way I want to close this morning is this. There's an old song from the 90s called He Is by Aaron Jeffrey. And we've done this a few times over the years. It's been a little while. This is a song that goes through every book of the Bible because in that book that we believe is the very word of God itself, 
That book displays for us the I am, who Jesus is. The one that we're being invited to open our hearts up to and allow him to soften our hearts so that his spirit can awaken our eyes to see him as he truly is. So what I want to do here at the end, we're going to read through the lyrics of this song. It's going to take several minutes. As we read through them, I want you to stand when we read an attribute about God that has particularly meaningful to you in your experience with God. Okay, whether it's, you know, redeemer or defender or whatever. The attribute that is particularly meaningful to you. When that one comes up, I want you to stand and join me in reading it. So we're going to start with just me reading. And eventually, as, it come, as you connect to one of those things, you stand and join me in the reading. And by the end, I trust we'll all be standing and proclaiming out who this I am really is. So let's begin. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. Numbers, the fire by night. Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. In Joshua, he is salvation's choice. Judges, lawgiver. In Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's sovereign. Ezra, true and faithful scribe. Nehemiah, He's the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, he is Mordecai's courage. In Job, the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he is our morning song. In Proverbs, wisdom's cry. Ecclesiastes, the time and season. Song of Solomon, he is the lover's dream. He is, he is, he is. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, the cry for Israel. Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he's the spirit's power. In Amos, the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he's the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, the promise of peace. In Nahum, he is our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he's pleading for revival. In Haggai, he restores the lost heritage. In Zechariah, our fountain. In Malachi, He's the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. He is, he is, he is. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is God, man, Messiah. In the book of Acts, he's the fire from heaven. In Romans, he's the grace of God. In Corinthians, the power of love. In Galatians, he is freedom from the curse of sin. Ephesians, our glorious treasure. Philippians, the servant's heart. In Colossians, he's the Godhead Trinity. Thessalonians, 
our coming king in Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He's our mediator and our faithful pastor in Hebrews, the everlasting covenant. In James, the one who heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, he is our shepherd. In John and in Jude, he's the lover coming for his bride. In the Revelation, he's king of kings and lord of lords. He is, he is, he is the prince of peace, the son of man, the lamb of God, the great I am. He's the Alpha and Omega, our God and our Savior. He's Jesus Christ the Lord. And when time is no more, He is, He is, He is. Praise you, Lord. We praise your name, Lord. We give you praise, Lord. Praise you, God. I would ask you now to kneel down with me. Before this God we just declared. I know it might be difficult in those chairs. Do the best you can. Lord, we just declared what your word says about you. You are all of those things and more. You have everything, everything any of us could ever want. You're the very purpose for which we were made. And your love, Lord. Your love, your goodness shines through in all of these attributes. Lord, would you show each of us in our hearts? Are we hard-hearted? Are our hearts soft before you? Willing to let you have your way? Reveal things to us about you that maybe... We haven't been comfortable with to trust you even in the most torturous situation. Lord, soften our hearts that we might know the fullness of your love. Because when we know the fullness of your love, it changes everything. 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 Joy, peace floods our soul. In the final quiet moment, let the Lord speak to your heart. Lord, I thank you for the soft hearts that are in this room. I believe there are many. But only you know. Help us to maintain this soft posture. Help us to Open the eyes of our hearts. Only you can do it. We can't do it for ourselves. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts to see you in all of your greatness and not hold back what you want to do in us at all. Work in our hearts, Lord. Bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to pray into what God may be speaking to you, the Morgan Wex would love to pray with you. Anne-Marie's here, I'm here, Leroy's here. We would love to pray with you.